As he went along, he saw a a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So he went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where's the man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and that had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. We will, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to a godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, 
you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you, with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is John chapter nine, God's word. Many of you probably know the name Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, He's a famous storyteller. He wrote lots of books. Uh, One of those is The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, The tale of The Emperor's New Clothes was originally released in 1837 uh, with another title that most of you will know probably better, The Little Mermaid. So in in the tale of The Emperor's New Clothes, there's a very vain, self-absorbed emperor or a king, and he loves to buy and wear new clothes. And so he makes the perfect uh, person for these two con men who are selling clothes. Now, the the clothes these con men are putting together and selling is actually made of a very special thread. This thread can only be seen, or it's invisible to anyone who's incompetent or stupid. So nobody wants to be viewed as incompetent or stupid. So as these con men are sewing this wonderful piece of clothing, the king sends officials to investigate how his clothes are coming along. And each time, the official who goes to check on the clothes can't see anything. But because they don't want to be seen as incompetent or stupid, they pretend that they see a wonderful set of clothes. This happens all the way into the final day until the king comes to get dressed. And the king himself doesn't see any clothes. But the king doesn't want to be seen as stupid or incompetent. And so the king pretends to allow himself to get dressed in these clothes and proceeds to walk around the city dressed only in his birthday suit. So it's not until the end of the story that everyone sees this king walking naked through the streets that a child is willing to say what everyone else saw and should have recognized. The king's not wearing any clothes. In other words, the entire story demonstrates the irony that the king and his whole kingdom, minus this ignorant, innocent child, pretended that they saw a set of clothes that didn't actually exist because of their pride and fear of other people. They pretended the whole time, and and as a result, this whole kingdom is really a joke. It's, It's everyone's laughing in the end, and the king himself is put to shame, runs away, Naked. My girl said that we can't look at that book because it actually shows the back of the guy running away. And <laughs> so, so I learned this story. Uh, Anderson didn't actually create the story from scratch. He based it on an, a story from the 1300s that he read in German. And the German translation is the way of the world. So very telling, the way of the world. And whether this story finds its root in God's word or not, there is some definite parallels that we see as well. Pride and fear, fear of other people, ultimately, what they think of us, can blind us to the reality of the world we live in and cause us to do foolish, self-destructive things. And ultimately in John 9, pride and fear of man blind the eyes of the whole, really all of the people in this story. 
to the effects of sin, to the identity of the son and the way of salvation. So in the first seven verses, we're gonna see the miracle itself. We see this amazing miracle where Jesus Christ, the light of the world, opens the eyes of a man born blind. He heals him. And then the last seven verses demonstrate that this story is ultimately not about a physical healing, but about an eternal spiritual healing. So yes, God the Son does care about our physical bodies. He does heal physically and he can heal physically. But if we make this ultimately about a physical healing, we've missed John's intention for the story. This chapter demonstrates that Jesus Christ does have the power to open physically blind eyes, which demonstrates that Jesus as the light of the world can open spiritually blind eyes to the nature of sin, to salvation, and to his own identity as the son of God. So that's, that's the big idea. The big idea this morning is that true spiritual sight is possible only through the gracious work of Jesus, the light of the world. True spiritual sight is possible only through the gracious work of Jesus, the light of the world. So we'll look at this story in six movements. And first is the miracle itself in verses one to seven, where we see the light of the world gives sight to the blind and sends them out. So the sign itself in verses one to seven is actually really short. It's just really verses six and seven. But two important things we need to understand as we look at this sign is first signs in general, and then this particular sign. And so signs in John, uh, the word signs, as you'd expect, is, is pretty clear. A sign points to something else. So we have a sign that says Community Bible Church. The sign points you to Community Bible Church so you know how to get there. The sign is not Community Bible Church. So if you go to the sign and expect to gather with other people and worship, you will find no one. So the sign points to something else. And John, the signs Jesus performs, this is one of them, they point to Jesus's identity and the kind of salvation he was going to bring about. They point to Jesus's identity as the Messiah and the salvation that he was going to bring. So what is this specific sign? So if you look at it, it's only in verses six to seven. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. That's the whole sign. What does the sign reveal about Jesus's identity and the salvation he came to bring? Actually, the context makes that clear. And we should see that because it says, after saying this, he spit on the ground. After saying versus what we see in the first part of this chapter. And then we see the sign itself. So the context of the sign make clear what Jesus was doing in the sign. So it starts with the disciples confused. They walk by this blind man, a man blind from birth, and they have an assumption. They say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? They're confused and they're wrong about the nature of sin. They look at this man and they have an assumption which was common in the Jewish culture and writings of the day that this sin was the direct result, I'm sorry, this mal malformity, his blindness was the direct result of either his parents' sin or his sins. So this is also true. It's been true since the time of Job. 
So if you can, if any of you have read the book of Job, Job's comforters, Job suffered, and his comforters, these other men, came to him repeatedly saying, we get that you're suffering. You're suffering because of your sin. Just admit it. Again and again, they kept telling him that, and Job would not do it. They had this assumption. If you're suffering, it's because of your sins. Jesus corrects this misunderstanding. He brings clarity to their confusion about sin. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So in other words, suffering is not the direct consequence of individual sin. So yes, our sins do bring suffering. If you sin, it's going to invite suffering into your life and it can and will. Also, Adam's sin in general brought suffering to the world. Many of the sins or many of the suffering we face is a result of Adam's sin and now sin and its effects of the fall. But it is wrong to assume if I'm suffering, it's because of sins. They have wrongly made a direct correlation between the two. Jesus says that's not the case. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Rather, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this case of blindness is not the direct result of sin, but it's the purpose so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God has a purpose and he's going to bring it about through Jesus right now in the works that are about to happen. Next, he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what is the identity that Jesus points to right here? What is he revealing about himself through this sign and through this statement? It says, I am the light of the world. And then he's gonna perform this sign. The context of the passage, I think it makes very clear what the light of the world means. So right now he's in the world. He says, while I'm in the world. So right now he's in the world. The light is shining, his clarity, his clarity he's, he's shining like a, a light in a dark room making clear what, apart from the light, you couldn't see. He's showing sin to be what it is. He's doing works that testify to his identity as God's sent Messiah. He's bringing about God's purposes in all that he does. But he says night is coming when no one can work. He's pointing to the time that he will leave the earth after his death when no longer will he physically be present. But right now he is. And he says, I am the light of the world. What does he mean? He means that he shines the light on the, the broken, dark world, giving an understanding of sin, an understanding of suffering, an understanding of salvation. And he's already brought clarity on sin and he's gonna continue to bring clarity about sin. He's gonna reveal his identity and his work in the sign that he's about to do in verses six and seven. And then in the very end, he's gonna make clear salvation and the way of salvation in verses 35 to 41. We're gonna see the same themes at the end of the story that we see here in the beginning, the themes of blindness and the themes of sin. And Jesus is going to teach a spiritual truth about salvation, the truth that Jesus came into the world to open the eyes of the blind to see and worship God. And also that Jesus came into the world to blind the eyes of those who think they already see. So it's a spiritual truth that's ultimately being taught in this story. So if you put it all together, 
We're taking a bit of time to look at this, verses one to seven. Jesus is the light of the world. He opens the eyes of a man born physically blind so that, or which demonstrates his power to open spiritually blind eyes. That sounds really obvious, right? You might think, okay, we heard that in Sunday school or I read that in a VBS lesson. But here's where the story takes its most important turn. No one in the whole story gets it. Nobody sees Jesus for who he is. Nobody. If you read the whole story, nobody sees sin for what it is. Nobody understands. Nobody sees salvation for what it is and embraces it through Christ. And nobody sees Jesus for who he is except for this one blind man who Jesus acts upon, who Jesus opens his eyes and later seeks out and instructs. Nobody else gets it. And therefore, the rest of the story, we're gonna see four or five important truths that are Christ-exalting and sinner-humbling. They bring us low, and they lift high the sun. So let's read first, verses eight to 12, where we see signs alone are insufficient for spiritual sight. Signs alone are insufficient for spiritual sight. So I've already pointed out that signs themselves are not the end goal. They simply point to something else. But in the following verses, we see the connected truth that signs are insufficient to bring the spiritual sight we need. So again, the sign for CBC points you to our church, but the sign cannot bring you in. It only points you where to go. So the sign, rather than open the, the eyes of all who saw what happened, it doesn't seal the deal. Actually, without Jesus's presence and illumination, the sign seems to bring confusion. Just look at verses eight to 12. It's marked by confusion. So this man who was once blind now sees. Some people ask, isn't this the man who used to beg? Some say, yes, it was him. But others say, no, it only looks like him. So here's the man that it says neighbors and people who saw him. So those who walked by, people saw him often. Here's the very man now walking around seeing in their presence. And what are they, they don't get it. They don't see him for who he is. Some of them say, no, he only looks like him. I I remember browsing DVDs at the Olathe Public Library I've never seen this. I don't recommend it. But there was a weird movie called Les Moustaches. It was a foreign film about a man with a mustache who shaved his mustache and then nobody knew who he was anymore. His own family, his friends, no one knew who the guy was. If you've seen it, I don't know anything about it. But that seems laughable, right? How could you possibly just have no mustache and all of a sudden no one knows who you are? The same guy who sat begging time and again, these people saw him, He's probably 13 years old or older. They've seen him for years and they don't get that it's him. And he says, I'm the man, it's me. This should have been it. This should have sealed the deal, right? This sign, it's clear. If one of us was sick and was in the hospital with a serious illness and the church prayed to God for that person and that person was instantaneously healed, came back and told us what had happened and said, I had this serious illness. You all were praying, I've been healed. Do you know what that would not produce in anyone? It would not produce faith. It cannot 
on its own produce faith. Signs are insufficient in and of themselves to produce faith. Signs can't, but they do point to the one who can. So that's what we see first, is signs are alone are insufficient for spiritual sight. Secondly, in verse 13 to 17, we see pride is a source of spiritual blindness. Pride is a source of spiritual blindness. In verses 13 to 17, the, the neighbors likely are the ones who now bring this man to the Pharisees. What they're doing here is they're probably doing what we should expect. They wanna know what happened. Jesus isn't around at this point, And so they're taking him to the religious authorities to try and get an explanation. So they take him to the Pharisees and here John finally introduces the fact that this had happened on a Sabbath. Now on the day when Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. So the Pharisees who, as we've been going through John together, especially in chapters five through eight, we see are opponents of Jesus. They even want to kill him at this point. So the Pharisees are Jesus' opponents. And so when they hear about this miracle, they actually are looking for a way to catch Jesus or to put him on the spot or to pin him down. And so they inquire how it happened. They wanna know how it happened. And so as you read this, I think it's important, not only that the healing happened on the Sabbath, but John makes clear in verse 14, the day that Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was on the Sabbath. So I think what's happening here is it's not just that Jesus healed the blind man on a Sabbath, but the way he did it was by making mud. This is what the Pharisees are gonna take fault with. This is what they wanna know and they say, how did it happen? And so it's not because the Pharisees don't like mud. It's not because they wanna keep their clothes clean. It's because one of the 39 classes of forbidden work on the Sabbath in the Mishnah was kneading bread. Now I had to look this up. The Mishnah is like the oral law. They had commentary and interpretations of the Old Testament law. And that was true in the Old Testament passed down. And now in this day, they've got the Mishnah. And so this is not part of the law that they're citing with these 39 prohibitions. But kneading bread was part of the Mishnah that these Pharisees followed. So if, if you're not been in the kitchen, you don't know what kneading bread is. Kneading bread, you take water, flour, right? And then you push it together. You knead it into a bo- uh, do- ball, ball of dough, dough of ball. Okay, a ball of dough. <clears throat> so he had to work to make that bread. And so by implication, they're thinking, okay, to, to work bread, to knead bread is to work. And Jesus made mud out of saliva and dirt. So he's worked the dirt together. That's a stretch. Rather than bringing clarity, there's actually now division among the Pharisees. Some say he's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And others say, how can a sinner perform such signs? So the sign didn't bring spiritual sight to the Pharisees. And the division, it's ultimately a result of pride. So Jesus has already, again, he's presented a challenge to their position, their prideful position. Throughout the gospels, you see Jesus pointing out that many of the Pharisees loved their position of pride in the community. They loved being the teachers. They loved wearing the clothes. They loved having people call them rabbi. And when Jesus came, he challenged 
that prideful position and they hate it and they hate him. And as a result, they oppose him. Now, I'm not 100% sure on this. They could have been opposing him because he did a healing on the Sabbath. But I think it's ultimately because he made this mud on the Sabbath. Regardless though, they are standing above Jesus in judgment and saying, you've broken the law, you are not from God. Especially if they're making this, finding this fault with Jesus about making mud by kneading it together, they're, they're finding something that's not even in the law and faulting him. In pride, they're standing above him. And I, I was convicted as I read this myself, how often do I, how often maybe do you, do we take our interpretation of God's word or even our traditions or our particular theological system and say, I'm right. This person right here in this particular context, they're wrong. In fact, we can demonize our opponents. We're just as quick to do things like this in our pride. I know the right answers. I know the right ways. I know the right system. This person, they're wrong and they're bad. But this is a much more dangerous case because in this case, the Pharisees in their pride are placing themselves above God, above the very God who made the dirt, who gave the law and who made them from the dirt. Important to this whole story, this section, the only one who sees with any clarity is the blind man who Jesus healed. They ask him, what do you think about this? He healed you. And they say, he is a prophet. So it's not a full understanding of who Jesus is yet, but it's a true understanding. By saying he's a prophet, he's acknowledging this man is from God. I'm recognizing this man's from God. The only one to see with any clarity is the blind man Jesus healed. Next, in verses 18 to 23, we see that fear of man is a source of spiritual blindness. So they still don't believe that the man born blind had been healed. And so what do they do? They bring the man's parents in now. They send for his parents. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these parents. So again, the, the boy, because they say he's of age, he can speak for himself. He's at least 13, maybe older. But imagine you're the parents. You joyfully welcomed a young boy into the world, excited for your child, and the child was born blind. And then 13 years later, this child born blind, something amazing happens. This man named Jesus comes heals the man's eyes and the boy can now see. Your son born blind now sees. What would you expect from these parents? What would you have welling up in your heart? Gratitude, thanks. You'd want to know more about this Jesus. You'd probably be very positively affected towards him. Maybe you'd follow him. These parents see the encounter between the parents and the Pharisees. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that you can now see? Their answer, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. So not even the mention of Jesus's name. Say, we don't know who healed him. We don't know how his eyes were opened. Now it's, 
almost impossible that the, the boy, the man, hadn't come and told his parents what had happened. We read what had actually has happened is that they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So the parents had this option put before them. Align yourself with Jesus and risk the offense of the Pharisees and potentially getting kicked out of the synagogue or they could allow... Or they could do what they did, which is pretend they don't know what happened, how it happened, and pass the buck to their son. So rather than risk rejection, that's exactly what they do. They choose the synagogue over Jesus. They choose the blind guides in the synagogue over Jesus. They choose that community instead of Jesus's community. So it's clear that the parents, even though they're intimately connected with the sign and the healing, that they do not see the greatness of Jesus, the light of the world, or else the rejection and pain that they would have had for being kicked out of the synagogue would have been seen for what it is, as far less significant than being connected to the son who brought about the healing. So their fear of people, their fear of being kicked out of that synagogue and community kept them from aligning themselves with Jesus. And ultimately, that's the last part we hear about them as they continue in that synagogue, not connected to Jesus. We see a very different reaction from the son, a very different reaction from this man Jesus healed. In verses 24 to 34, we see that spiritual sight comes with a cost and the insufficiency of arguments to give sight. So as we, this is really the climax of the story. The animosity of the religious leaders, it is now clear and it's clear to the readers, it's clear to the man who's now been brought again a second time into the synagogue. It's clear that they're not really about the truth, that they're trying to catch Jesus or trip the man himself up. And so we need to understand that as we see this encounter between the man and the Pharisees because there is a bit of sarcasm. There is things that Jesus says to the Pharisees that if we don't catch, he's being sarcastic. He knows what they're really asking. We would miss it. And it's ironic, we see from the beginning, because here's what they say. Give glory to God. Now, in some translations, it'll say by telling the truth. Others might not have that, but give glory to God, ironically, and other, it means tell the truth. And here's what then they say. We know this man is a sinner. In other words, tell the truth. Tell us that he's a sinner. They supply the man with the truth that they want to hear. They're not interested in truth. This is kind of like when Martin Luther if you know his story, stands before the Diet of Worms, where he knows that his stand for the truth of Scripture could result in his death. But he says, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. This man, he has an option we're going to see. But he stands and he says, whether this man's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see so the blind man, he had a choice, just like his parents. He could have thrown Jesus under the bus to save his skin, couldn't he? He could have said, yeah, I guess you're right. The man's a sinner. But he refuses to do so. Instead, he acknowledges what's true and what he does know. 
All I know is that I was blind and now I see. So these Pharisees aren't interested in truth and so they continue to press in on him in this encounter. And this, this is where we see the sarcasm. Then they asked, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, I don't think he's genuinely asking, do you want to become a follower of Jesus? No, he's sarcastically using a bit of wit here. And it is funny. They do not. They hurl insults at him. And they said, you're this fellow's disciple. We are followers of Moses. Or we're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but this man, we don't even know where he comes from. So this actually is inconsistent with their own statements in John. They've already claimed that they're not gonna follow him because they know where he comes from and they don't like where he came from. But the Pharisees themselves are inconsistent. And here they're saying, we know Moses is from God. We don't know where this man's from. In other words, we don't think he's from God. Now we're gonna see this wonderful argument from this young man. You know, he's blind. I don't think he had that much education. And yet he uses some very simple logic. He puts before these men a very simple, reasonable, valid, and wholly ineffective argument at opening their eyes. But listen to his argument. He says, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the man's argument, it's solid. The major premise is that God does not listen to sinners. And yet God has listened to Jesus in this action of healing a man born blind, which in the Old Testament, there's no precedent for. Therefore, this, this man must be from God. It's very simple. It's very valid. And what was the effect? It wasn't repentance. It wasn't belief. They replied to him, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. We've all been there, haven't we? You've, you've been there with your spouse. You've been there with one of your children. I've been there personally many times. The other person is wrong. They're clearly wrong. In fact, you could tell them how they're wrong and you take the liberty to do so. You explain in a very simple, rational argument, no, that's not how it is, bing, bam, boom. And they say, ah, oh, you're right, I was wrong. That's never really the case. Unfortunately, that's because often I walk around in a state of sometimes humility, but often I don't want to admit I'm wrong because of the shame or the effect it might have on what people think about me, or I'm just, you know, you're always angry when you realize you're wrong. It takes a certain humility to respond in that laughable repentance and acknowledgement. Proverbs 9 says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. That's exactly what happens to this young man. So as a result, well, two things are clear from this story now. The reason that we see this man get, get kicked out is because he was aligned with Jesus. It's because of his connection to Jesus and his refusal 
to throw them under the bus. So first, there's a cost to spiritual sight. In other words, when you see Jesus for who he is and you follow him faithfully and walk in his ways, you will suffer. It could be even with other believers. When you see sin in a professing believer's life and you refuse to not let that sin go unaddressed. And so in love, you seek to address it and correct it. It could be that you receive insult or reviling. Now, it could be because that person is not a genuine believer. It could be they are a believer. It could be in the world. There's only one person, I, uh, there were maybe several people, but the one person I know who came to faith through our, our ministry when we were overseas was a, a young man. And I remember he, we, we studied the gospels together and he began to know what the scriptures taught. He ended up graduating and he got a job and he, on, on his job application, he lied. It asked if you had a faith. It asked if you had a religious affiliation. And he lied. He said no. And I remember, I believe he was a genuine, a genuine believer in Jesus because he came to me really feeling the pain of what he'd done. And he said, Josh, I feel like Judas. But the reason that he did that was because, now this is possibly true for some of you in your jobs, or it will be true at some point in the future, for him to have said, I have a faith or I follow Jesus would have been not just a black mark on him, but it would have been a black mark on his parents and his brother who served in the military. And he knew that if I said, I follow Jesus, there was gonna be a cost. So I don't know what it is in our lives, but there is a cost to following Jesus. When you see him for who he is and follow him, there will be suffering. But secondly, we see the insufficiency of arguments. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. Not the best gospel presentation. Not the, the most clearly articulated apologetic argument. Not the best sermon. None of these can open the eyes of spiritually blind people. God can use them. But ultimately, on their own, they can't open eyes. But the son can. And the son does. And we're gonna see that in the very end of this story. But one thing I wanted to apply before we go there. Last week, Cody called us. Uh, Cody came to visit and share about his ministry. And he called us to pray for his ministry and for the people he's ministering to. Now, sometimes that can feel like this, kind of throwing a dog a bone. Like, all right, he just wants to make us feel like we're involved. I believe that he was honestly and rightfully telling us our prayers are a big part of any ministry because it doesn't matter how good the teaching is doesn't matter how, you know, what the ministry does without prayer, without God's mighty work in a person's heart, that work can accomplish nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so I wanna encourage us, thank you for those of you who pray for our ministry partners. Continue to pray for them. Pray for our local partners and pray for anyone you're ministering to because without God's spirit, not signs, not arguments can save, but the son can. So finally, the only source of spiritual sight is the Son of Man. The question is, are you blind? The final section has two parts, verses 35 to 39, which is Jesus' encounter with this young man who now can see, but he's been cast out, and verses 40 to 41, which is Jesus' encounter with some Pharisees, and they stand in stark contrast with one another. 
Let me just read them. Jesus heard that the man, heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, I don't wanna make too much of this, but I don't wanna skip over it. Jesus went and sought the man out. I just love that. I love that Jesus went and found him. And he asks him a salvation question. Do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? That I, the man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you now see him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now Jesus said this to the young man in the presence of others. For judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So ironically, in illustrating the whole spiritual truth of this passage, the blind man whose eyes Jesus physically opened now both physically and spiritually sees Jesus for who he is. And he worships him. And yet the Pharisees, who claim to have open eyes, who have seen the healed man, who've heard his testimony, who've heard the testimony of his parents, who've heard this reasonable argument, and now hear Jesus' own words of warning persist in sin, in blindness to who Jesus is. So Jesus' statement in verse 39, it's much like his, his teaching in Mark chapter two, verses 15 to 17, where he, he's confronted for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Seen rightly in the light of God's word, there is no one who's healthy. There's no one who doesn't need a doctor. All are sick, all need the great physician's healing. And yet some are going to persist and say, I'm fine, I don't need you. Here, Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So in the story of the emperor's new clothes, the entire kingdom in pride pretended that they saw clothes that they could not actually see. And it resulted in shame and mockery and laughter in the whole kingdom. Each of those people did it because they feared people. They feared what other people would think about them, that they'd be seen as incompetent or stupid. None of them was humble enough to admit, I don't see the clothes. Their pride had blinded them. Except that little boy. He's either a picture of humility or the boy doesn't exist in this world because none can see Jesus apart from his work. The good news though, the good news is that Jesus heals the blind. So for those of you who don't understand, who say, I don't get it, I need help, I can't see, open my eyes, help. God, the Son, graciously hears and gives you the light you need. He gives you the light you need in, your, in his word and he'll give you the grace you need in your time of trial. The question though is, are you blind? Some will persist and say, I don't need any help. I see everything just fine. Thank you very much. So here's some four points of application to finish. 
For some people, this is a call to salvation. This is a call to come to Jesus as the light of the world, as the one who can shed light on sin, on the way of salvation, on the reality of the world we live in, and say, God, I don't get it. I can't see it. I need your help. Open my eyes. Save me. For others, this is a call to repentance, to the continual repentance that Sean led us in today, a repentance that every disciple must live in. Because sometimes we look to some political leader, we look to some medical guru, we look to some spiritual teacher or pastor and say, this is the light of the world. This person, they can show me everything I need. And we need to repent of that. Jesus alone, God alone, is king. Perhaps we failed to suffer. Maybe we knew that this following Jesus in this context was gonna bring suffering and we chose, I don't want it. In fact, I wanna avoid it today. We need to repent of that. Following Jesus will bring suffering and it is worth the suffering. He calls us to it. Thankfully, as Sean reminded us, God is ready just like that father, Jesus, that like the song says, there's 10,000 charms in his arms. Run to him, he will forgive you, he's compassionate. For all of us in this room, I just can't help but rejoice. If you are in Christ, you have the light of life. Think about what you know by God's grace. Think about what you know about the world we live in, about sin and the effects that it will bring to your life and others, about who God is and how he's made you and what he's made you for and where you're headed, what the future holds. In all of those things, rejoice. You know so much. I know so much because of the light God has given in Christ. But I, I wanna finish where Jesus finishes his teaching. This, to some, is a sobering warning. For those not yet in Christ by faith, those who are currently rejecting him, for those of you who say, I know Jesus, I get it. I know what he's like. I don't want him, and I don't need him. Be warned. If in your pride you refuse to admit your blindness and come to him for life and light, you will die in your sin. There's a sobering warning. But it's one that's without, not without precedent. We see it in the book of Isaiah, actually, and I don't know if this is intentional, but in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied about a time where the Messiah would come and in that time, the eyes of the blind would be opened, the, the voice of the mute would come out, the lame would be leaping for joy and then finally, that was in verse 30, chapter 35, he finishes Isaiah 50, 10 to 11, later in the book and he says this, very fitting for this passage. Whom among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. There is both grace and there's also a warning. So let me close in prayer. Lord, it's almost hard to imagine, but you are the gracious king. You're the one who offers life freely 
everlasting life, forgiveness of sin in your son. The payment is made. The price has been paid. Any and all can come to you for salvation today. And Lord, we acknowledge unless you open our eyes, we can't see it. And so we ask, draw us. Draw those in this room who are not yet in Christ in faith to see you for who you are and to worship you and find life in your name. Lord, help us to walk in a way worthy of your calling upon our lives. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the light that you've given. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this church. And we ask in all of these things, Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.